you're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Uh, Acts chapter 17, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. I'm just going to stop there for just a second because Paul in this place would have naturally assumed, I think, like any of us, that, okay, I'm I'm only going to be here for a short period of time, Uh, see a few sites, you know, I don't Maybe he was not that, uh, that, that wasn't his thing. But I can tell by the, by the nature of how this is written that uh, in the time that he was waiting, he saw something in this city that badly disturbed him. He saw the idolatry. Now, I want us to start making a connection. I want us... To, to recognize that the, uh, the idolatry of Athens looks very much like the idolatry of today. And I'm not talking about the idolatry that's in the world. I'm talking about the idolatry that's in the church. This is, you know, Scott uh, Lops made this statement and I couldn't find a good reason to disagree with him, that the greatest hour of idolatry in around the world happens between 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Because there's more idolatry in the church than there is in the world. Now that's, again, that's, that's quite a statement. But when, and it, it's easy to see, you know, uh, I've been in a few situations, and, and I'm sure y'all have as well. You know, been in a few situations where I uh, showed up to preach one Sunday morning at a church where I was interim pastor. I won't mention names, but uh, the, the pulpit was gone. The, there was some people in the church that knew I didn't like that big pulpit there, so they, they took it and moved it as far away in that church from the auditorium as they could. They stuck it back in a closet as far away as they possibly could, that big wooden pulpit. My goodness at the firestorm. That pulpit was worshipped as a piece of furniture. And before the evening service, it was back. I told them, I thought, I will work around it. I don't care. I'll, I'll work around it. It's amazing when, when we sat down in, in the sanctuary of any church, when we, when we start saying and deciding what's supposed to happen in there so that the church service becomes pleasing to us, then we have created an idol. And, and it's, it, it, this isn't hard to understand. Buildings are worshipped. 
Positions within churches are worshipped. <clears throat> the place where somebody sits every Sunday that they don't want anybody else to sit in becomes worshipped. No, no, no. I was trying not to look right there. I was trying to look everywhere else. <laughs> they said they were... It's a, so when you begin to consider what, what Scott said, that that hour between 11 and 12 around the world is, is one of the greatest hours of idolatry, concentrated idolatry, it's because we have begun to worship those things here that we love. It, we have formed churches. He came back right after that to say, churches are not formed in God's image, they're formed in ours. They look like us. They look like the music that will please us. They look like the sermons that will please us. Or we're going to go somewhere else till we can find what pleases us. So I want us not to just connect this passage in Acts chapter 17 to the, the idolatry of a lost world. We expect idolatry there. I wouldn't be bothered at all to see the world worshiping idols because that's what the world does. So in verse 17, when he, when, when he continues, it says, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that, that met with him. So recognize he, he's, he's upset about idolatry, but who does he talk to? He says, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. He's saying, you are, you are the voice here. You are the one who understands the one true God. You are the one who can say. You're the one who can speak with authority. You're the one who can move in power. And we're surrounded by idolatry. So he talked to the Jews. He met with the devout persons. And in the market daily with them that would meet with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. Let's just stop just a second because the Epicureans were a sect of people who pursued pleasure. Everything was about, about the pleasures in life. Peaceful life, free from pain, cause no conflict, cause no harm, concede, just let this, we're, the objective is pleasure and let's get along. The Stoics, on the other hand, uh, the emphasis in their lives was about moral sincerity about high sense of duty and proud dignity. They believed that, that God was in everything and everything was God. So there, there were these high-minded people, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who sought him out and encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seems to be a, a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So they were hearing things that they had never heard before. And they took him and brought him into, I don't, I don't know how to say that. It's the same thing as Mars Hill, just another name. Saying, may we, may we know what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is. For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what we, we want to know more about these strange things. What do they mean? For all the Athenians and strangers which were there 
spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So once again, we begin to make this connection between what Paul was dealing with in that moment and what is being dealt with today. Because what the fascination in the Christian church has, has not been encounter with God. It's just been about the next new thing I'm going to learn. That's why we value education in the pulpit. I'm not, I'm not dismissing or downgrading the, the fact that some pastor has a doctorate. But that pastor who has a doctorate by that qualification only has the ability to give you more information. That does not add a credibility or a dynamic that says he, he or she knows anything about bringing a group of people into an encounter with God. There's no doubt that the Christian church has elevated education and knowledge from the pulpit and in Sunday school classes. I think I told you that story. Jan and I went to the, I think it was the Ladybird uh, place where they had wildflowers in, in Austin, and they had a, a gift shop. So we're in there and struck up a conversation with a lady, and, and she's talking about uh, her Sunday school class. And it, I think she said it had like 1,200 people in her Sunday school class in a, in a, in a church in Houston. She said, we just love our teacher. He just, he just tells all the history. He knows so much, many facts about the Bible. He just brings it all together. And, and I mean, just huge following in his Sunday school class because of, the, because of the knowledge of the teacher. The fascination of getting to hear, either tell something new or hear something new as, as Paul is encountering here, that that's, what, that's how the Athenians spent their day. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. I would have loved, I would have, I'd love to time travel into this moment when Paul stood up. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now, somebody that has a Bible other than the King James, what word is put there? You are too religious. This is one of those times when you really need to use the Greek. You really need to know what Paul is saying here. I'm trying to bring us into the reality of Paul's conversation with them then would be very similar to Paul's conversation with us now because I think Paul would say, I find that you are too religious, too superstitious. But when we understand in, in, uh, in Greek, I don't know if, if anybody else has this capability of doing this, but I'm going to do this right quick. Uh, one of these days, Parker, it would really be nice if uh, we figured out how to have Blue Letter Bible open on Sunday night so that you could actually do what I'm doing up there or somebody back there could. Uh, yeah, it's just, I think it would be handy in Bible study to have it up there so that everybody could see this. I'm going to put in this verse in Acts chapter 17. 
uh, and I'm in, I'm in verse 22. I'm going to go to this word superstitious. And I'm going to do a couple of things. Uh, it's a phrase. It's, it's R2 superstitious is one phrase. And the first thing I'm going to do, and I probably don't know if anybody can hear it or not, but I want, to, I want you to hear this word pronounced. Uh, G1174, Dicedimon. Dicey Okay, that's, the, that's Greek for this word superstitious. Dicey is not the part that I'm very concerned about because that's, that part in this conjunctive word means to fear. Let me, let me have him listen to the second part of this again, the second part of how he says that. Daimon. 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 Demon. They were worshiping something demonic. That's amazing to me. Paul. It's not saying you're too religious. He's saying that the practices within what you're doing are not honoring God. They are not, they are not under the will of God. They're not under the instruction of God. They're not under the guidance of God. What happens in most religion? Who gets left out in much of what happens when religion gets involved? God gets left out who is left in? Satan. Satan. When we start doing in any place in our life, both personally and especially corporately, that we do anything other than seeking and searching and looking for God's will in anything we do, we leave ourselves open and subject to worshiping something that is not of him. I can show you churches that worship hymn books. I can, you know, Kate and Ryan tell the story of, of, of going, going to a, a large church in Fort Worth. And man, that hymn book was worshipped. It wasn't just that they preferred it. It was worshipped. And they had made a decision, they got new hymn books, and they had made a decision that they were going to sing every song in the hymn book going through them week by week. Now, that would be a great way to pick a set of music, wouldn't it? Okay, today we're going to sing hymns 1, 2, 3, and 4. Next week we're going to sing 5, 6, 7, and 8 until they got all the way through the book. Until they came to some of this radical stuff, like majesty. They're not singing that praise music because by that time, the little bit of the praise music had, had crept into the hymn book and they'd come to those and they'd skip them. 
You know who wrote Majesty? Jack Hayford, the pastor of Living Way Church in Van Nuys, California, one of the most godly men I've ever, I've ever studied under or heard. Uh, he's a pastor, but he, he wrote a lot of music, and Majesty is one of those songs that he wrote. And we're, not, we're, not, we're not having any of that newfangled music. Man, who is in? Is that God? That's hard. It, it's really hard. And I don't, I'm, 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 I don't mean to judge them, but it, this is, these are just such good examples of what this really looks like. When we begin to, to and, 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 it's, and it, I found it interesting that, the, that the, the word superstitious sounds a little more questionable, when, but when so many of the versions says, you know, that when it changed it to the word religion, I feel that you are too religious. That leaves us with a very different look or a very different thought than what's really being expressed by the word superstitious because it is this, this fearing, a, a very strange reverence of things demonic. And, he, and, and then Paul con, continues, for, for I'm sorry, in, in Paul's reading, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, What were the devotions? He's saying, I'm watching what you have made important. I'm and I, again, he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to these Athenians. And he said, I am noticing by your devotions, what, what are you honoring? What are you spending your time on? Where are you spending your money? Where, you know, where are your efforts going? He said, I can tell by your devotions I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. So he found a way to introduce to them under their own system of understanding because they, we, we've been taught this many, many times, that, that coming up Mars Hill, there was every God possible, Diana and others that were, that if I remember how this was taught, but, but they wanted to make sure they didn't offend any God, so they had a statue to this one unknown God as this catch-all. They should have just put set and miscellaneous down here, and miscellaneous God. So they, and they, they just were determined not to leave anybody out, not to offend any God or offend any people, so they put to this unknown God. And Paul says, he's, re he's realizing, I'm going to use the door they opened by declaring this unnamed God, and I'm going to tell them in this moment who that unnamed God is. So he begins to tell them under this premise about who God is. <clears throat> the devotion's so strange to me. I can tell, I beheld your devotion. I, my, my mind right now is going, it's, it's just clicking off. All these altars, these devotions that believers have to things that we have made important that God never made important. And y'all know, you know largely what sits at the top of my list. 
it's one that nobody else seems to be very concerned about. I'm not talking about you sitting here in front of me, but around the world, no one seems to be very concerned about this one. But it ought to be an extreme concern to us that we find that we are so devoted to a denominational name. I called a friend, it's been a while back now, but I called a friend and had a conversation with him. I even asked him to come to sundown and visit about this question of denominations. And the questions that I had and the, and the uncertainty about it, because I just can't, couldn't find it in the Scripture, that God elevated or valued a denominational title over a church. I just couldn't find, I couldn't find it in the scripture. And, and I, don't, I don't think I expected the response I got, but the response I got was, and this was his, certainly his privilege and his right. He said, I will come, but only if you will give me equal time to everybody else who says who raises a question about denominational lines, only if you'll give me an equal amount of time to counter every one of them with why we need the denominational lines. Yeah. He said, I'll come. Do what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I man, I just didn't, I didn't, I wasn't surprised that he was supportive of it because that's why I'd ask him in the first place. But it was like, I'm not asking somebody here in this invitation to come who has an open mind about this. I'm coming, I would be inviting somebody who was determined to declare a position that was already held. Like, wow, that, that, it, it was such a strange, such a strange response that even after my conversation with him and telling him, just show me in the scripture, he never offered scripture. He offered history. He didn't go here and say, this is why we have them. He went to history and said, this is why we have them. I don't think that matters. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure your history is right. We bow to strange altars. Verse 24. God that made the world. This had to be strange for the Athenians to hear. That, that, that had worshipped so many gods. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and of earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. And I can imagine Paul's voice crying out and announcing this over the people that are sitting there listening to him who have come and asked him, would you tell us? about this new thing that you're describing, this new religion, this new God that you're talking about. And he stands in that boldness and he says, 
I'm not talking about the gods that you go down this path and you can see, here's this God that does this, and here's this God that did this, and here's this God that did this. He said, I'm not describing those, that kind of God to you. I'm describing a God that made the world and everything in it. I mean, this is a bold declaration, and I love verse 26, and has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. How in the world can I stand in the position of that statement and say that God is about us being divided? He has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. Man, I don't know what was happening in the minds of those Athenians in that moment. But if they were asking and to be introduced to a new thing, the new thing has been announced. There is this God that you have declared to be unknown, that can be known. And anybody who reaches, anybody who searches, anybody who seeks can happily find him. <clears throat> I can't tell you how, and I'm not going into this, but I can't tell you how this really speaks very plainly against a particular view that says that it's already determined who's going to be saved and already determined who's going to be lost. I can't read verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Every one of us. Who got excluded in that phrase, Every one of us. No one. Everyone can find him. Everyone can feel. Everyone can search and happily have the access to discover him. You've got to torture the scripture to find the calculation that all of that's already been determined. Verse 28. Here it is. Here's the one I use all the time. For in him we live. In him. Go back just for a second to John 14. When Jesus, in this treatise that he's giving to his disciples because he's about to go away, he begins with this. He begins with the greatest comfort he can give them. In John 14. He's speaking in broad terms, and as he goes, he gets more narrow all the time in the things that he's saying. But he tells them, in my Father, in my Father's dwelling, there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a room for you so that where I am, there you may be also. I know that to say that that's not talking specifically, though it, it, it does include that that's not talking specifically about heaven. 
Now, when we read it and it says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. It makes us believe, because of that word mansion, it makes us believe he's talking about heaven. But when we read it in Greek, in my father's dwelling, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'd go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Matthew, you're, you're a student. Got all those young brain cells going around up there. We're all jealous. If he's going to go prepare a place so that we can be where he is, wouldn't it be important to understand where he is? See, that's, that seems reasonable to me. That where I am, there you may be also. Well, where was he? Yeah, in John chapter 14, verse 10, he announced it. I am in my Father. And my Father is in me. I'm going to prepare a place in my Father so that you will have a place to dwell in Him because that's where I dwell. I dwell in Him. Man, that was, to, that was supposed to be the comfort to the disciples that even though I'm going away, I'm going away to do, to do something. It's, it's, it's expedient that I go away. It's necessary that I go away because if I go away, I can deal with your sin. And in that preparation, I'll not only clean you so that my Father could come live in you by, by this Spirit, but I'll also prepare a place in Him so that you can dwell in Him. And that's exactly what Jesus said. I am in my Father, and my Father is in me. Now we go to the end of this, into John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for all who will believe, starting in verse 20. He says, Father, I pray that they will be in, that they will be in you as I have been in you. He's praying the reality of us existing in the Father. In Him we live. And he continues, in him we breathe. I'm sorry, in him we live and move and have our being. This would be an entirely different scripture if he said, for, for him we live and move and have our doing. Not what it says. In him, not for him. In him we live and move and have our being. Human beings, not human doings. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and men's devices. When we, when we look at this passage, 
we recognize Paul had a moment. He was bothered by the idolatry. He was bothered by the devotions to things that were not of God. He said, I see that you are, I recognize that you are too superstitious, that you are too religious. And then he stands at the opportunity, he sees this window in which he can speak when he, when he recognizes this statue with his unnamed God, and he says, I'm going to declare this God to you because if I declare this God to you, it will erase the idolatry. It will erase the superstition. It will erase your wrong devotions to wrong things because I'm going to declare to you this God that created everything. I'm going to declare to you this creator. I'm going, to, I'm going to declare to you that this is a God who doesn't dwell in temples. I'm going to declare to you that this is not a God who is served by human hands as if he needed something. There's, there's a message right there. Once again, why did he not die to make servants? Why did he die to make children? Because he didn't need servants he wants relationship with us. He could have hired servants. He died to create relationships. Man, this is, Paul is saying if we have this true God, as Paul described, he's saying we have everything. Nothing excluded. He is essential. For everything and without him we have nothing. This is hard for us to comprehend. You leave God out. We have nothing of real value. We want to assign value to many things. What did he say about it? I can take all those things and you can, I'll build you barns and you can build bigger barns and you can stack that stuff full of all these things that you value and tomorrow what can happen? You die. And you're going to realize the value of the stuff that you have in barns. I'm not talking to you, Jackie, because I have a barn as well and that's where the valuable stuff is, is in the barn. Man, he's telling us as plainly as he, as he can possibly tell us. He was announcing to people who were valuing education, valuing knowledge, valuing their traditions, valuing this openness that they have to all these, un, all these gods, making sure we don't offend one. And boy, Paul takes this step through this door. He opens his mouth and he declares something. He says, I want to tell you what I think about your idolatry. I want to tell you what I think about your passions and your interest and your love of knowledge. I want to tell you by this declaration what I think of your devotion to those things that should not be ever, you should never bend your knee to. I'm going to, I'm going to announce to you this God before whom I bow. This God that you can know. This God that's not this unknown God. I want to declare to you that if you reach for this God, you're going to touch him. If you search for him, you're going to find him. 
because he will not be far from any of you. He is a God to be discovered. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.